Um, good to see you, especially after a joyful Easter celebration. Hey, I want to start out by kind of acknowledging uh, the, the elephant in the room, a little bit of controversy, uh, just because a number of people have pointed it out to me today. Uh, I am, in fact, wearing a Dodgers shirt. Um, you see, I grew up in uh, Southern California, and uh, it's a thing. And I would have thought that after three years, like, this wouldn't be controversial anymore, that in the house of God, it is a place of all nations, um, a place where all divisions cease, where all are welcome, even, even Houston Astros fans are welcome here. Um, but uh, since so many of you have pointed it out to me, I just wanted to call that out. Uh, for, hey, for the next eight weeks, kind of leading into the summer, we are going to be going back into our multi-year deep dive into the Gospel of Mark. And the goal is to finish uh, this time next year uh, with the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Uh, but that does mean that coming off of our celebration of the resurrection on Easter Sunday this year, we're going to be going back in time for one week with a story that was set on the Monday after Palm Sunday. Uh, just to give you a little bit of perspective about why, you know, it's going to take so long, you might be thinking like, well, how long is the Gospel of Mark, like if we're just there? Um, a few things about the way that uh, Jesus' first century biographers put the story together uh, in, the, in the Gospels, Jesus' public ministry took place over a roughly three and a half year period. And we know that kind of from the scattered details about uh, the festivals, the dates, these little geographical markers that pop up and just kind of sit in the background of the stories. But over this roughly 1,200 day period, all of the Gospel writers put together a special focus on the last seven days of Jesus' ministry. For Mark, the week between the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and the week of uh, and the resurrection, that one week period takes up 38% of the gospel. And the reason for that is that Jesus spoke of his death as having a particular significance. He described it as something that was both promised and something that was given. It was something that he outspokenly and intentionally moved toward in his ministry. It was promised. Uh, Mark tells us that Jesus spoke to his disciples at least three times, telling them what was going to happen and how everything was going to unfold with the cross. He quotes the prophets to describe what kind of Messiah he is going to be, the suffering servant who takes on the sins of Israel. And on Palm Sunday, he's kind of letting them know, we are moving toward the end game. This, this is where it's all going to happen. But his death is also something that is given meaning that it was not the result of a, an idealist kind of making a few wrong turns and making mad the wrong people. It wasn't because a Roman bureaucrat had a bad morning. It's because he willingly laid his life down. He chose a collision course with the powers of the world specifically to unmask and to expose those powers. I love how the priest Fleming Rutledge puts it. She writes this, only by looking at the cross of Christ do we learn the magnitude of the forces that held us in bondage. We escaped. He was immolated. The size of the ransom is equivalent to the size of our enslavement. That is the payment of equivalent value. That is what we are worth to him. Jesus chose the cross to demonstrate God's kingdom. He chose the cross in a way that would demonstrate 
what God was up to, God's justice, God's love, he chose to live in a way that would lead to the cross. And so all that is to say that the, the gospel writers make a big deal around this week around Jesus' death because Jesus made a big deal about this week that goes around to his death. He was pointing to cross and resurrection as the turning point, as the hinge of history and the Spirit's presence to empower, as something that changes everything about how we come to God. And we see reflections of that in the passage this morning. So as Krista comes up, uh, we are going to kind of re-enter back into the drama of Holy Week into one of the most difficult and dense passages in all of Mark's gospel. It's where a confrontation with the heart of Israel's faith leads to the cross. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 25. Will you join with me and pray before we read? Lord, prepare our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit to receive your word with joy and eagerness. Give us ears to hear and take to heart what you would say to us today as we read the scriptures from Mark's gospel. After Jesus had gone to Jerusalem, he went into the temple and looked around at everything. But since it was already late in the day, he went back to Bethany with the 12 disciples. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their hearts, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a story about the great jazz trumpeter Wynton Marsalis. He was headlining in this famous uh, Greenwich Jazz Club, uh, and he reached this moment near the climax at the end of the song, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You. The audience was kind of wrapped in this masterful performance, and as he just kind of got down to the, the final bars, a cell phone blared out and interrupted the whole thing. There was a pause. And the audience kind of started to shift uncomfortably in their seats. The, the spell that he had been weaving over them was broken, and the embarrassed, cuddle, uh, embarrassed caller kind of just made his way out into the lobby. And then at first, Marcellus began to play, 
And then he began to improvise on the cell phone's ringtone. And he started to play it again and again with a few different accents. And then spinning out kind of a rhapsody on the tune, he, he changed keys. He, he wove something glorious out of an interruption. And over the next few minutes as he played, as he, he kind of drew the audience back in and they, he wound the cadenza down, he, he resolved the improv, improvisation and, he, and he, he came right to the spot where he had left off in the final phrases of with you. Yeah, generational talent gave thousands of performances, but what he did that night is he drew the audience into something special, something transcendent. He filled them with awe and with wonder. In Mark 11, Jesus is on his way to the temple and he curses a fig tree. He, he, he pronounces this curse. He, he steps into the temple then to stage a protest. And here we kind of see the same moment of anxious tension that was going on in that Greenwich nightclub. Uh, the disciples are there. So are the teachers of the law. What is Jesus going to say? What is he going to do? How does that whole counter melody of the whole fig tree thing on the outside of town, what does that have to do with any of it? And I think Jesus is doing what Wenton Marsalis did. He is weaving the story of the temple, the story of God into a much larger tune that displays the full character of God's mission and God's rule. His words and his actions become in this moment an act of theological improvisation, a kind of living parable about God's justice, about God's heart, and how those things can pour themselves out into judgment. This is Jesus at his most confrontational, at his most radical. It's, it's as if he's saying to the leaders of the church, your temple and its worship have interrupted the melody and I am here to pull them back into the larger story. Now the way that, that Mark does this is he has uh, his own kind of literary improvisation. He, he embeds this enacted parable of Jesus in the temple with another enacted parable of Jesus cursing the fig tree. Uh, to change the metaphor a little bit, he does like some inception level dream within a dream kind of like storytelling, multiple layers of it. We, we've come across this before in Mark. He will start a story, then he'll interrupt it with another story, and then he'll come back to the original story at the end. Uh, scholars call this an intercalation or a sandwiching technique. And like any good sandwich, the essence is the thing in the middle. And so on face value, this whole, yeah, Fig tree incident seems totally weird, right? Like it's the only time in the gospels Jesus uses divine power to wound instead of to heal. What's up with that? Maybe even seems a little un-Jesus-y. Uh, that was the conclusion made famous by the philosopher Bertrand Russell. In a public lecture from 1927, he cited this incident of vindictive fury as a defect in Jesus' moral teaching. He said, then there is this curious story of the fig tree, which has always rather puzzled me. I, I just love how British people talk. <laughs> it was not the right time for figs. And you really cannot blame the tree. I cannot myself feel that either in the manner of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. And I think his point might make sense if Jesus was being petulant or if Jesus woke up hangry that morning. 
but what if something else is going on here? Now, there are a lot of commentators will, will point out that healthy fig trees produce nodules, these, these little things before they leaf, and these nodules are called tagim. Uh, these can be, and frequently are, eaten by natives. If a tree has produced leaves, but there are none of these little nodules, none of these tagim there, it's a sign that the tree is diseased or that it is perhaps dead. It, it might have the appearance of health, but the tree itself is incapable of bearing fruit. And honestly, that seems like maybe something for the horticulturalists to sort out and not the biblical scholars, I don't know. But it does raise the question, what if this whole thing is not about the tree at all? What if instead this is kind of like an improvised performance art? What if Jesus isn't just about telling parables but he is about acting them out in the world as well. Case in point, in Jesus' ministry, he tells parables of God's grace. He'll describe, say, a, a king who, who so badly wants to have a full table that after uh, the first people that he asks have, re have rejected him, he will go out to the highways, to the hedges, to, to compel the poor, the marginalized, to his table. He wants so badly for this feast to be eaten that he will do whatever it takes to get anyone there. And then Jesus acts out this parable of grace wherever he goes. He eats with tax collectors. He eats with sinners. He eats with the poor. And maybe Jesus is acting out a parable of judgment here with the fig tree. And in doing so, he's doing something way bigger than what initially meets the eye. In this improvisation, he is weaving together strands of Israel's history, her, her hopes, her calling, and her presence into the melody of God's eternal reign. Let me paint the scene a little bit. Up on the screens here, uh, we've got a picture of a first century Judean coin. And these were in circulation shortly after Jesus' death, uh, when the groundswell of revolutionary activity kind of reached its boiling point again. Uh, they were minted as kind of an underground protest against the Roman coins that bore Caesar's image on them. On the one side, you can see there is a palm tree. It's a symbol that goes back to a time in Israel's history, again, when messianic hopes for a savior were riding high. It harkens back to this time a couple hundred years before Jesus, when the Maccabees drove out all of the Greeks from Jerusalem. And when they returned in their victory parade, people were waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna. Sound familiar? And shortly after this triumphal entry, the priests then went into the temple. They purged it of every bit of Gentile influence, and they reconsecrated it as a place of worship. And the temple became this source of Israel's pride, the source of her, her national identity, the source of her religious identity. And so don't get this idea that when Jesus comes into town on Palm Sunday, He's pulling up on this polite little parade. People are waving their, their palm branches as a sign of peace. And for sure, some of them are, are shouting, save us, out of sheer desperation. They are broken. But some have the hope that Jesus is going to kindle the revolution again. And if he does, he's going to go straight into the temple and drive the Gentiles out. 
So when Jesus comes into town on Palm Sunday, he does what a lot of people expect the Messiah to do. He goes straight for the temple. He goes to scout it out. He goes to the highest point in the city to see what's going on. And what he would have seen would have been a humming center of commerce and activity. Uh, the temple itself was this sprawling context, uh, con- complex of like 35 acres of space. It had become kind of like a first century bazaar uh, where animal dealers were there and money changers were there and they're all doing business, all of which was, was necessary to ensure that the sacrificial system could keep on going in perpetuity. Uh, to get in mind of like what this might have been like, think about like how crazy and, and frenetic everything is uh, on the morning sessions of the, the, the floor of the, of, of the stock trade in New York City, right? And then add like a bunch of sheep buying like in the background and all kinds of noise like that. A historian Josephus notes that in one week alone, 255,600 lambs were sacrificed so the temple was a busy, busy place. And, and sacrifices have always been part of the temple. Hour by hour, worshipers would come inside. They would charge interest to change their Roman money into the Tyrian coin. Uh, they, they, they bought animals then at a markup that was guaranteed to be perfect. And all this profit would go into the pockets of the priests who were also charged with making atonement for sin. In other words, the temple had become a religious industrial complex. And all of this frantic, loud activity is taking place in the place that is supposed to be reserved for the Gentiles to come and draw near to God in prayer. So Jesus begins the improvisation. He turns over tables. He disrupts people from buying and selling, from carrying their containers across the courtyard. He quotes Isaiah 56, which reads like this. For this is what the Lord says. Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others, still others to them, besides those already gathered. The prophets had this vision of a time in which all human crookedness is straightened out, where all of the injustices and enmities are replaced by deep relationships, where where humans are knit together in brotherhood, in sisterhood, where all nature and all people would look to God, would walk with God, would lean on God in delight and joy and worship. And where these shouts of delight would well up from all corners of the earth and all nations and all ethnicities would be bound together with God and each other in justice, fulfillment, and joy. This is what the temple is meant to become. The prophets describe how Israel is to be a light to the nations. And this was not a new thing that they were making up. This was always God's vision for humanity. 
God blesses Abraham so that he would be a blessing to the nations. The the covenant is explicitly stated to be an example to the nations. Isaiah speaks of God's heart and God's uh, desire to gather all nations to participate in his glory. And Jeremiah imagines a time when all the nations will stream into the temple. Jesus tells his disciples to go to all nations. And in the book of Revelation, we see a glimpse of where the story is headed, where all nations are gathered around worshiping the lamb that is seated on the throne. From the beginning of the story, God's desire is to draw all people into one family. Israel is given the law and the covenant to shape them into the kind of people that were capable of welcoming the world. A holy people that demonstrated God's heart, what holiness was meant to look like, what the, that the law was meant to be a blessing. But instead, Jesus comes to the temple to find a whole lot of people engaged in frantic religious activity and barriers that keep the nations out. Archaeologists uncovered a sign on the walls of the temple with this inscription on it. No foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. They could use a hospitality committee. (laughs) And so Jesus would have found walls within those walls. And they would have kept women separated from men, would have kept the outer court separated from the inner court, and a great veil that separated the holy of holies, protecting the sacred from the profane, separating everyone from God's holiness. And so in his words and in his actions, Jesus has not come to clear the temple of Gentiles. He has come to clear it for Gentiles. He has not come to interrupt the bloodshed of sacrifice. He has come to replace it all together. He is saying that this temple and the whole sacrificial system around it might look healthy. It might look appealing from a distance, but when you get close, it is doing just enough to stay alive, but it is not producing the fruit of the kingdom, and it cannot do that. So I'm letting you priests know, you rulers of the temple know that a time is coming real soon when God is going to shut it all down. Make no mistake, the same Jesus who offers comfort to the afflicted has also come to bring affliction to the comfortable. And friends, this is still a word of judgment that rings true for us. I've been thinking a lot lately about our mission statement, practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. And it's meant to kind of communicate both an input and an output. These spiritual practices are to the way of Jesus what scales are to musicians. You run them over and over to shape you into a kind of person, to to get into your muscle memory, to get into your heart, to have them become a part of you. There are activities that are meant to kind of open you up to being intentionally shaped by the Spirit and allowing the, the Spirit to do the deep work of transforming your character so that your actions begin to look a lot more like Jesus. More like Jesus than by whatever intentional or unintentional habits you kind of consciously and unconsciously fall into. 
so that every time you open up your Bible, every time you fast, every time you, you, you go to serve, every time you pray, every time you, you work in your, your, uh, your, your job, every time you come to your community group and, and come together with others, or every time you come to worship, what you are saying is, that, yeah, my life is crazy. All the pull of desires pulling me every which way, everything all out of whack inside me, but here is this moment where I'm present to you, where I'm present to myself. So come, by your spirit, shape me from the inside out so that what flows out of my life looks more like you. Because here's the point. When you, when you play scales, the point is not just to get really good at playing scales. It's to go out and perform the music to join in the melody that God has been playing since the dawn of creation, to participate in the Spirit's renewal of all things. And not just in the church, but in the law courts and in the legislative assemblies, in the executive suites and in the banking centers, in the places where power is used to bolster up and benefit the powerful, to, to keep those who have not had power from ever having it, in all the places where those with means curve inward toward themselves instead of outward toward the world. It is really easy to mistake practicing the way of Jesus with a kind of frantic religious activity. But if what we are practicing does not lead to the renewal of all things, then what we are practicing is not the way of Jesus. Because Jesus is still turning over tables. Jesus is still shaping the world. And so we all got to ask, if, if Jesus were to inspect the leaves of my life and yours, of our life together as a community, of the American church as a whole, what would he find? Healthy on the outside, but barren on the inside? A place of a, a lot of frantic uh, uh, religious activity aimed at securing our own salvation? Or would he find a place where shalom where the kingdom is made manifest, where it spills out into the world in restoration, in repair. Weekend gatherings are great. We all experienced a time a few years ago when everything was interrupted. And as much as it's wonderful to come together and sing and pray, it's not enough. And it never has been. And it was never meant to be the center. So maybe more than ever, we need to be in each other's lives, helping each other live out this gospel seven days a week, helping each other see how the fruit of the kingdom spills out into the world and what that fruit means for how we run our businesses, how we raise our kids, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we vote, how we create an environment of welcome for those who are far from God in our own lives so that together we can experience the shalom of the kingdom. In his book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, Historian Alan Crider notes that one of the defining features of early Christianity is how these communities would welcome people who they should regard as natural enemies into fellowship with one another. And they learned it from Jesus. He had this remarkable ability to, to draw people from the most culturally incompatible backgrounds into a new family, a new community. And I 
have every hunch that this is why at the very moment that Jesus is pronouncing judgment on this system that so badly failed God's intention for Israel, his final word is a stern command to forgive. Because he knows it's not going to be easy. And only those who have learned how to forgive know how to press into this kind of community that God makes possible. Well, the disciples walk out of town. They see this withered tree. Maybe they have the words of Jeremiah ringing in their ears where God says, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree. Their leaves will wither. What I have given them, I will be taken from them. And about 30 years after Jesus enacts this parable of judgment in the temple, the temple is destroyed. But friends, in Jesus, judgment is not the final word. Because if this temple is destroyed and if this sacrifice stops, then forgiveness has to be found some other way. And this is how Jesus comes to resolve the improvisation. You see, our, our errors, our failures are like a noisy cell phone cutting in on the performance. And so he pauses. And there's that moment of dramatic anger and grief that we would call judgment. But then slowly, painstakingly, but eventually thrillingly and joyfully he weaves us back into the melody by building a new temple in his body a new sacrifice in his cross that frees people from their frantically trying to secure salvation on their own terms and a new house of prayer in the community that gathers in his name and it is as this community each week that we come to this table where we take in his forgiveness of us we come to this table so we can remember the tune. Less ritual than it is reminder that the judgment that God required was taken into his body. And so as we come, we acknowledge the weight of the forces that hold us in bondage so that we can go out and join in the song.